Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. And this is something that I've been super stoked to give you guys. Uh, this is an update from Ukraine from Dr. John Quinn. Uh, John, if you would give us a uh, quick introduction of yourself. Okay, great. Yes. So uh, my name is John Quinn. I practice emergency medicine, mostly in the UK and occasionally Ireland and further uh, far forward. Um, I have uh, been able and been fortunate enough to work on and off in Ukraine since 2014, um, supporting operations in one way or another in the pre-hospital environment. And uh, I've also been fortunate enough to engage with partners and uh, really subject matter experts in the prolonged field care as well as in uh, far forward medicine and uh, been able to engage right now currently uh, with a NGO humanitarian uh, organization that is providing support through the Ministry of Health of Ukraine. Um, as with the current conflict, there's also a lot of uh, interoperability with the Ministry of Defense uh, as it relates to not only point of injury care, but also uh, tactical evacuation care, role one and role two. Uh, this also includes critical, um, critical care evacuation. Um, that's been the the last the last two and a half months have been very challenging uh, as it relates to uh, point of injury care, tactical evacuation, and role one in country. Uh, I've kind of zigzagged throughout, providing mostly ground transportation as well as support services at the uh, at the point of injury and tactical evacuation phase, and more recently, most recently in the role one. So that's kind of sort of everything in a nutshell as it relates to the current conflict and the current um, state of play with the, the the medical situation right now in Ukraine. Okay, so you're definitely the right guy we need to talk to about this. So just from what I understand, um, really this conflict between Ukraine and Russia, this is nothing new. It's been going on for, for years and years. Um, so I guess uh, how, in roughly around the time of the Crimea, uh, Ukraine seemed like they started kind of, I won't say modernizing, but... Uh, um, a lot of emphasis into training in uh, in things like T3C and PFC and kind of how did that transition kind of happen like what level of providers were taught what sure yes so um, there was a significant decrease in capability and capacity from around 2010 2011 until uh, 2013 and the onset of 2014 with the with the initiation of hostilities of the entire uh, military medicine throughout the Ministry of Defense for Ukraine a significant decline in reduction and as the events unfolded in 2014 and 2015 there was a, a significant as you rightly state there was a significant upswing in uh, T3C by partner nations by partner forces by volunteer groups, um, and there also was a focus with prolonged field care. Uh, this was owing to a anywhere between a two to four to six, and in some instances longer hours of uh, evacuation time to just get to a roll one and occasionally to a roll two. Ukraine being in the um, climatic zone that it is, uh, many months of the year it's extremely cold. And even in the warm period, it's extremely cold. So this is uh, detrimental to morbidity and mortality, uh, as well as having access to pre-hospital medicine in in a in a uh, in a modern European state. So there were many challenges. There was a lot of focus on training. There were many organizations that provided training. There was a significant um, uh, emphasis and focus, and really trying to align with Department of Defense uh, clinical practice guidelines, with partner forces and NATO clinical practice guidelines not only at point of injury care and at pre-hospital medicine, but also everything all throughout the wheel of and the continuum of care all the way to rehabilitation. Uh, there was a lot of work, work groups, uh, workshops. There was a lot of um, academic exchanges and university exchanges and really trying to focus and push and drive that alignment into a NATO standard, into a, a very high clinical standard. However, as fighting decreased, uh, interest and support started to decrease in some instances as well. There, there were many organizations that, that kept the long game and kept pushing and driving forward, but there were many others and, and a lot of money dried up and a lot of budgets dried up um, as we pushed into 2016 and 2017 and 2018, despite um, subtle spikes of violence and spikes of, of um, 
of incursions by Russian forces, it was really kind of at this steady state. And the, the, the focus on T3C continued. There was a lot of uh, translation of a lot of very high-level clinical materials. There were still a lot of academic exchanges. However, focus did shift um, elsewhere in the world. And as things really started to build up in 2021, the emphasis started to come back, started to reorient. At that time, there were also a lot of uh, surgeons, a lot of anesthesiologists, a lot of emergency medicine doctors that had had about five years of uh, continuous training, not only um, within Ukraine, but also outside Ukraine and with partner forces. And there were a lot of other uh, continuous exchanges just to look at global health engagement in general as it relates to um, a lot of the, the back and forth with everything from pre-hospital medicine to rehabilitation, actually a, a significant rehabilitation program with findings that were published in 2019 and 2020 that were very helpful uh, and very forthcoming with um, the successes of, uh, of Ukraine with partner forces such as the United States with their, their being able to get uh, warfighters back to, uh, back to the, the, the battle. So um, that was sort of the, the, the gambit as it relates to uh, exchange and build up when it comes to building resilience um, there there was uh, there were a few hiccups there were a few difficulties with uh, the legal restraints as it relates to what you can actually do in the pre hospital environment there are also hiccups and, and difficulties in the legal front as it relates to interoperability between Ministry of Health forces so you're a doctor in the Ministry of Health yet you want to provide health care to a Ministry of Defense person or a, another defense force uh, person and they had to overcome that uh, that challenge challenge and vice versa between MOD and MOH being able to provide surgical uh, capabilities, for example, in an MOH facility and vice versa. Um, interestingly, when hostilities initiated, on March 5th, a significant sweeping reform bill was passed uh, in, uh, this is this year, 2022, um, uh, for DCR and DCS for damage control resuscitation and damage control surgery as it relates to specifically blood and other surgical interventions required, really being, making it um, widely known that, look, this is legal, you can do this, um, and, and we want to encourage this. Now, that, that will require additional follow-up legislation, but they really came a long way, taking three or four or five years to be able to push some of these legal restraints to be able to put the right tools in the right hands of the right people at the right time, um, and then being able to say, look, hostilities began on, on February 24th uh, with this new iteration of violence that is, and by, by March 5th, they were able to really enact some of it in some instances uh, with translations. It's a bit difficult, but almost a copy and paste from some of the DOD uh, CPGs, uh, clinical practice guidelines. Uh, so that was very encouraging, although more, you know, still remains um, uh, that, that requires to be done. Yeah, I mean, of course, but I mean, something like just blood, there's a lot of countries, you know, all over the world that, you know, are afraid of uh of doing anything like that so that's uh amazing that you guys are in such a short period of time uh implementing something like that and i'm i'm like i'm very confident it's gonna it's gonna save a lot of lives um but this the the other training uh in, in t3c and and pfc as well um you know how how was that translated like is it is it are you seeing a, a significant increase in uh in uh, Live Saved? Absolutely. Um, just to give you an anecdotal sort of walkthrough, if you look at a, there are, now there is a, um, uh, it's inconsistent across the board, uh, not to look at any geographical uh, process or, or locations, but it is inconsistent. Some role ones will have a Foley catheter, will have multiple thermal blankets, will have sometimes three levels of access. So, you know, two AC uh, IV access points and a, and a subclavian or other central line. Um, some will have intubated, uh, induced intubations or RSI. Others will not. Others will have absolute minimal um, uh, access to this. Some will have cross-matched blood in a roll one, if you can imagine this, uh, while others are looking really more at getting that access to O negative. Um, so when it comes to morbidity and mortality, I can tell you right now in 2022, um, adherence to these, you know, these core metrics for prolonged field care and these, these core concepts of, of really trying to stop that lethal diamond um, are, are adhered to in many locations, not all, and there's still obviously every, everywhere there's area to make all of our practice better, no matter what we're doing, no matter when we do it, but um, there is a significant reduction in morbidity and mortality. Um, anecdotally, in a 24-hour period, 
I transferred 14 red patients, polytrauma patients. All of them had received those interventions that I just described. And anywhere, there was sometimes a delay of 60 minutes prior to roll one. In some instances, there was a delay of three to four hours prior to a roll one. They received these interventions. And at 72 hours, and that's really the only visibility I have on those patients, um, there, there, there was no, there was no um, mortality to speak of. Now, I don't know what the 30-day is, and we won't know for some weeks, Tom. Um, but at the same time, uh, just anecdotally, if you look at that, just that snapshot out of time, that very simple data point of a 24-hour period, um, adherence to those principles was followed and led to better outcomes. Outstanding. Outstanding. Um, especially uh, if you guys can figure out uh, how to crack the nut on documentation, that's going to be enormous, I think, uh, worldwide. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we will, and it, you know, I obviously need to engage with uh, additional partners, but we've, we've really stuck with the TCCC uh, card, and we've really focused on those efforts uh, to make sure that that is actually passed from point A to point B. The, uh, the Ukrainian MOD have their own TCCC card. It's not a TCCC card. It's a clinical practice card. It's mostly for damage control surgery, and it's a bit, it's not so, uh, I've, I've introduced the TCCC card and the concept, and we end up basically bringing both of them through echelons of care. I do not have any feedback at the role three. Um, however, it would be great to, to get a better understanding as it relates to documentation of, of that process walking through. We have it in both languages. We have it in Ukrainian and English um, so that provider can, can, can document and so that in down the echelon of care, if, a, if additional provider says, oh, wait, I need to understand what, what actually took place, um, there's some, some level of, of, um, of a continuum of care. But documentation is a significant challenge. I will say as it relates to uh, blood far forward, documentation is absolutely absolutely vital and what we've been doing is just keeping the actual um, empty blood product bag and and keeping that with the patient so that they understand um, this blood has actually gone into this patient exactly uh, and we're, we're that's kind of ad hoc um, that's not institutionalized that's not part of an SOP but we've just tried to initiate that uh, just recently actually perfect perfect um, so as this current situation is unfolded um, what sort of things have kind of surprised you or, or, or uh, I don't say taken you off guard, but have definitely risen to the top is, is something you didn't really plan for? Let's say let's start off in a positive way. In a positive way, I am absolutely uh, blown away with the amazing, amazing clinical care that our colleagues here in Ukraine are able to provide in an extremely resource-poor environment, as well as under extremely extreme duress from logistical, um, uh, kinetic activity, um, everything. They are able to move mountains. They have done uh, extraordinary, extraordinary uh, damage control resuscitation and damage control surgical interventions. Um, they've been able to institute, again, the, the concept of guerrilla hospital in that it's in the basements, it's in um, Cold War areas. Uh, uh, bunkers that they initiate um, uh, DCR, DCS. It's also, um, it's quite considerable, I think, being able to have, um, being able to provide transport uh, in in completely asymmetric vehicles and being able to provide uh, some level of care in an asymmetric vehicle, four-wheel drive pickup, no problem, um, armored, no problem, uh, you know, it, and it's really being able to maximize that resource. However, um, there are some shortcomings. Uh, I think it is rather inconsistent. You may have an excellent uh, evacuation chain, an excellent continuum of care, and excellent support along each uh, each echelon of care. So at the role one, and the role two, or the role three, and further uh, further in the rear. However, you may go to another location. Uh, not that far, uh, you know, it, slightly, slightly, maybe a different, just a different oblast, a different county, if you will, a different state, and you have an entirely different, um, maybe not as positive at all environment. So you may have significant challenges, and a role one may actually be a parking lot and an, an abandoned kiosk, and that's categorized as the role one. So you've got Joe's bringing. Um, 
bringing, uh, you know, war fighters that are injured to that location, receiving another into another vehicle. The, the others turn around, go back to what they was referred to as the zero line. They go back to uh, uh, engaged uh, fighting, and then the other the other echelon takes them to a role two, which may or may not actually function um, at a you know NATO defined role two. So it's, it's it's rather inconsistent at some locations, but the, the, I, I must emphasize the extraordinary uh, interoperability between MOH and MOD and what they've been able to accomplish. Um, I, I, I cannot put a finger on the morbidity mortality numbers, but I will say a significant reduction, um, a significant reduction, and it, it really, really trying to prevent prevent uh, the absolute worst. So I, I'm very, I'm very um, pleasantly surprised by that. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's especially in the middle of a, a conflict like that, it's, it's incredibly difficult to, to maintain something that hasn't really been tested to the limits like like you are now being tested um so you know logistical problems are i think magnanimous uh, throughout conflicts like this um in a negative way i guess what sort of things i guess maybe other than logistics which i think is pretty obvious uh, you know but things like wound patterns you know war is gonna is gonna cause just uh, just injuries that you wouldn't normally see. Um, are, are there been any issues with things like that? Um, uh, slightly. I mean, in, in, I'd say there's kind of, there's, there's two layers in pre-hospital medicine. When you, when you study to be a paramedic, when you study emergency medicine, it's mechanism of injury, mechanism of injury, mechanism of injury. And a lot of the patients do not know what happened. Um, there are a lot of blast. There's a lot of percussive injury, a lot of TBI, and the cluster munition grad rocket system, the MLRS, the multi multiple launch rocket system, is absolutely devastating. Um, the, the these weapon systems are just conventional warfare used in a hybrid and you know multi-domain battle environment uh, to devastating effect. So there is a lot of frag that has very small entrance wounds, and it causes absolute chaos in the abdomen, in the chest, uh, and in the extremities. Um, and that was probably the case uh, 65 years ago as well, based on different weapon systems. However, um, uh, you know, really having um, having a, a really focusing on that primary assessment, that ATLS driven, that TCCC driven primary assessment and reassessment. You're on a horrible road. You're traveling at a very fast, you know, rate with a, a very bumpy road, and you can really uh, dislodge. You know, you had clots. Uh, you had clots, and now you've just you've just shaken everything up, and now you're going to rebleed. And it was a very small entrance wound, and it may or may not have received adequate um, or appropriate um, pressure dressings at the time, and now you have re-bleeding. And that is something that uh, may sound very simple, maybe it is very simple, but that is something that, is, you know, based on the weapon systems, it is uh, it is a challenge. It's a challenge for first responders, it's a challenge for um, self-aid, self buddy aid, and it's a challenge, you know, across the continuum of care, really being able to understand what, it, what, uh, what you're actually dealing with. Additionally, um, a, a lot of traumatic brain injury, a lot. There are a lot of blasts. There's a lot of grads. There's a lot of artillery, a lot of really heavy long range artillery being deployed on a 24 hour basis. And so, um, there's a lot of positions that are getting hit and uh, a lot of walking wounded with significant TBI. Um, so, uh, you know, they come in walking wounded. They're obviously, uh, you know, escalated rapidly, but nonetheless, they are the significant TBI having access to a C CT um, is something that in obviously in my normal practice in the UK, I have easy access to a CT scan, basically anything I want to do at any given time, I have no CT scan. Uh, I, in some instances, when the power is out, I have no access to x-ray. Um, I do have an, a very small portable ultrasound, which is helpful at times, but um, it doesn't solve all, all of the, the issues. So I think those are some of the challenges based on weapon systems. Um, 
Um, it is very difficult when you don't have a mechanism of injury because the patient does not know what, what actually transpired. So that is that is a challenge. I, it, it's just something that you know, we're used to being able to engage with patients and say, okay, what actually took place? And we, we can kind of, in our mind's eye, understand, hey, this is what happened. They fell or this happened or uh, detonation, how close, how far were you, um, uh, what, type, what type of round was being used. And it's very difficult. It's extremely difficult to discern what actually took place, uh, especially when the patient uh, does not know. So that's that's challenging. That's challenging clinically. Yeah, that that's going to be challenging for anybody, and even the students that I teach uh, here. You know, it's it's really just a mastery of the basics and understanding how to assess. And even when you don't have that patient information, uh, kind of understanding the things that could be, could go wrong and where those high yield assessments and then continuing reassessments over and over again. So that's definitely, that's nothing new. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's see, so, I mean, I can only imagine, um, but uh, thus far, have there been any cases of really prolonged field care or very extended evacuation times that, that you are aware of? Absolutely, I mean, it happens uh, it happens basically with, I mean, arguably with every patient. So the zero line point of injury, it can be anywhere from around 30 minutes to 60 minutes to two hours before we actually get to the tactical evacuation phase. So that's just, that's it, it, the point of injury care is initiated. And as that patient uh, gets to uh, an asset to, to be able to provide tactical evacuation care to a role one, occasionally bypassing role one and going straight to role two, uh, that, that, that time has just been ticking. Access to blood in some locations, readily available. We can cross-match or I can really push for O-negative for the purposes of time. Um, uh, occasionally, we don't have access to blood. In fact, uh, you know, blood is, is gone. Uh, we would normally have access. We have the tubing, but we don't have the blood, um, and that's a logistical challenge. Um, uh, and sometimes uh, there's areas where they say, no, we're, we don't want to do this. We don't want to provide blood until they, they get further further um, through the echelon of care to a role three. Uh, and, and so that's a challenge, obviously, in dealing with, um, you know, our colleagues uh, in that in that sense. Um, but that's, um, uh, you know, as it relates to prolonged field care, there's having access to that tactical evacuation phase and into role one. I've seen a lot of uh, the thermal blankets being used. I've seen a lot of attempts at access, attempts at IV access, uh, also attempts at um, getting some tablets on board, you know, whether it's just antibiotics, some pain management, something, something to start the process. We really push, we really drive all of our partner forces that we're engaging with. We say, listen, get anything you can on board, uh, something that is, uh, um, and, and be great to get feedback, but um, you know, being able to provide TXA IM when you don't have access, uh, when you don't have IV access, and being able to say, actually, not only are we going to give you TXA IM, which is actually quite a few MLs, um, but we're also going to give you your antibiotic IM if you can't swallow, or if we don't think that you should be swallowing because you're going to be getting surgery in the next X amount of minutes. So, um, starting this process right now in 2022, it is it is miles ahead where we were in 2014 and 2015. Uh, and there's an acceptance, there is training, there's a training in the local language, so people are discussing this, they understand. I, a lot of feedback uh, from uh, pre-hospital care providers of, of partner forces have stated flat out, hey, we know that this patient needed blood, but we didn't have access, or we are not allowed to do that in our in our space. So identifying the issue, saying, okay, well, we can't actually do this just now, but we, we understand that what we should be doing. Um, having access to a Foley catheter, very, uh, very important intervention. Um, we don't have, uh, and I've seen more and more and more, um, we, we don't have a lot of access to basic uh, temperature monitoring devices. So, you know, the little, the little small $1.50 <laughs> uh, digital thermometers, uh, we've gone through quite a few of them. Um, it would be great if we had more access to the um, the Foley catheters that you can monitor uh, the temperature uh, devices, although you know, you know it has to hook up to the right monitoring system. Um, 
uh, and these sorts of these sort of advanced uh, advanced processes. But back to what you were saying about basic uh, assessment and basic processes. I think when it comes to just feeling your patient, putting your hand on on the patient's chest for an hour and thirty minutes, so you're monitoring breathing in the back of a truck, and it's you know red light only, um, and being able to understand are they sweating, are they not, etc. Uh, being able to really get a, a, a feel and a process. How is your patient actually doing? Is it actually too warm at this point? Um, and where is the fluid is the fluid actually still going in? Um, are we still are we still ahead of the curve or not? I think this is something that uh, is still a challenge as it relates to the prolonged field care environment. But there is definitely um, there's definitely challenges with time and and uh, really it's we haven't we haven't been able to avoid you know we don't control no one controls the air in Ukraine so you can't fly and you're going to be on the ground and security uh, events being what they are there are multiple issues with um, with with time and getting to uh, the next echelon of care, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, you know, I can only imagine because that's definitely not been an environment I have been in. Um, my environment, it was, you know, 30 minutes and they were gone. Um, and I think you're 100% right. Just the laying of hands on your patient for an extended period of time is going to give you, you know, so much more information. You're going to have so much better uh, feel, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, for that patient understanding you know, their compensation, um, during those, during those times. Absolutely. Um, so I guess you know, in your experience and having to deal with these prolonged cases, um, very imperfect type situations, what kind of principles have you formed or core principles that have kind of risen to the top as being more important, um, when it comes to casualty care? Well, I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb. The first thing is uh you know as you as you learn in paramedic school, scene safety. So so the safety of the provider. This sounds kind of uh, academic, I suppose, but uh our own safety is obviously very important. And I think that is uh absolutely key. Obviously, all of us are are willing to risk significant uh risk everything in order to provide levels of care. However, um you know, being able to be wise about how uh, you know how we capture our patients, how we collect our patients, and really focusing on 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 doing it wisely so that you can do the greatest good for the greatest number. You're not going to be able to do that much if uh, grad rockets take out your entire your entire convoy. So um, this is something that may sound kind of simple and basic, but it is something that has really uh, become acu- I've become acutely aware in, in this environment, and we are under you know bombardment 24 hours a day in some in some of our locations. Um, as it relates clinically, I think um, really, really being able to have everything on my chest and on my person, and not relying on things in the vehicle, not relying on bags that I have to be schlepping um, in and out. I don't have the space for a lot of those bags. I don't have access to them, even if I do have them. But if I have it on my person, if I have it on my chest, uh, the absolute vital, whether it's a pre-drawn medication or medications, um, or whether it's other simple diagnostic devices like a pulse ox and a temp uh, probe when I have them, um, uh, or whether it's a uh, an, an airway. Um, being able to have that on my chest is, is absolutely vital because I know that if I get thrown into a different truck or if I get thrown into the resuscitation or trauma bay of an alternate facility that I've only been at once or twice, I know what I have on my person. Even just having trauma shears on my person uh, to, for the purposes of exposure, adequate exposure, um, of, of the trauma patient. I think this is something that is just reiterating constantly um, uh, throughout, throughout the process. And, you know, your own PPE, whether it's gloves or a headlight or um, uh, other, other PPE that you have to have, like a vest uh, and things, I think this is, you know, and we have gas masks for ChemBio events as well. Um, and, you know, schlepping that around is a challenge in the back of an ambulance, but it's absolutely important. And I think this is something that, again, it sounds kind of basic, um, but I think it is, it is really important, you know, when you're up against conventional weapon systems, 
it is not um it is not this is not iraq this is not the mosul operations this is not elsewhere um where there has been really austere and um uh, hostile environments this is a very specific location with specific risks and threats and um, the weapon systems whether or not it changes the tccc paradigm or not will will only be able to tell after a collection of, of massive amounts of data but um right now as it sits uh, we can just apply the tccc principles maintain scene safety the best that you can um and and your own safety and have everything that you need um at the you know to be able to provide this medicine at the right time and uh, in and in, in the right place i think that is something that is um that that we're aware of here you know on an hourly basis yeah I mean, like you're talking about having the gear on you. So essentially you're talking about a March belt uh, and guys are definitely very familiar with that. Um, and then, you know, having other gear stashed other places, uh, if you need to, you know where it is and you can get to it uh, ideally, but at the bare minimum, have the ability to do uh, March and teacher IC on you, right? Absolutely, yes. And I, I don't have any fancy um, uh, stuff. I just have basically three or four different IFACs that I've just kitted out in their own. In their, you know, one is a an IFAC that's stuffed, and then the rest are, are you know, other bits and pieces that I have. And then you know, just put all your gloves in the in one back pocket, and 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 other you know, four by fours in the the other back pocket, and then uh, and go for it. But yeah, exactly. This is exactly the the type of um, you know level of access that you need. And if I don't lose a pair of trauma shears in one day then nothing has happened so i mean, I, I need i go through trauma shears like uh uh you know like coffee so it's something that um yeah just being able to really replenish that have access to it uh and also encourage other providers to have uh similar equipment on them so that you know well, what what everyone can handle and if you if your bag gets blown up or if you don't no longer have access to your bag you know you have something that is at least on your person that you can at least initiate care you don't want to get stuck in the chow hall and you've got nothing on you you're like i've got nothing and here we go this is a we're off to, we're off to the races and i've got nothing so you don't you don't ever want to get caught out like that right absolutely you know and, and i would the only thing i would reiterate is some, if somebody is preparing their march belt you know set it up how you think you want it and then you're gonna have to just use it like you know i'm sure right now you're getting lots of practice using that belt and so refining it over time um, i would also say you're in dire need of a retention line uh, if you're losing that many scissors <laughs> yes that's a good point i'll probably enact that this evening um that's a very good point um yeah i've, I've lost two and also people also say oh hey just give me your trauma shoes for a second while I, I do the other leg and then boom it's gone um <laughs> but yes yes in fact i mean uh and just you know with the trauma shears uh we were um doing a thoracotomy on a patient and uh trauma shears uh, actually were utilized during uh during this sort of intervention in the past which is uh perhaps not you know best surgical practice however it was very effective uh but yeah i have to i have to get on top of uh, losing all these shears <laughs> right there's only one thief out there everybody else is just getting their stuff back right <laughs> right yes that's right so um so i mean those are those are key lessons learned right there um or concepts or principles um i guess other than you know your you know scene safety and having gear on you um, what other lessons learned have you have you picked up along the way as far as maybe you know dealing with specific uh, MOI or or what have you? Absolutely, I think um, what you do before you get in a in a very challenging transport is absolutely critical. So spending an extra seven minutes or nine minutes prior to getting out of Dodge um, as it relates to airway as it relates to securing airway, um, as it relates to doing that, that, that final, when you, you know, in the back of a truck, you don't have ac like full access. So you have to really be squeezing and pushing and, and everything else. But when you do have access to that patient, doing that head to toe sweep, that ATLS primary assessment, and being able to really know before you get into the darkness, hey, what am I actually dealing with so that I know what I have to be looking at for the next two hours and 15 minutes on this horrible bumpy road with 
nothing but a red light and it's super hot in the back because you're trying to make it warm for the patient. Um, I think really spending that time for the tubes and lines and saying, what, what do I have? What am I dealing with? And which one do I think may pop first? Resecuring that, whatever that line is that you think is going to you know, drop first and you know, really considering all these other interventions that you cannot do while you are in route. And in the event that you get stuck at a bridge or you get stuck at some sort of uh, event of some kind, what, what are some things I can stuff into my pockets that I will have on me, whether it's a uh, another pre preloaded syringe of normal saline as a flush because I've got loads of, you know, I've got ketamine on me or I have this or I have that, but can I flush it? Um, and, and thinking about these sorts of very, very basic, very, um, very practical, very fundamental things are very important. Um, I think as it relates to, you know, uh, airway specifically, so as it relates to catastrophic bleed, I think it's very important, um, to, just to go backwards, I think it's very important to put a tourniquet on a patient with a controlled hemorrhage. So controlled hemorrhage, I'm going to be going somewhere for two hours and 15 minutes, put a tourniquet on that patient. Do not apply the tourniquet uh, entirely, no, but you place the tourniquet on so that when you reassess that, if you say, wait a second, I'm bleeding through this all of a sudden because I've been on this bumpy road for an hour and 45 minutes, you can easily twist the tourniquet and, and stop that uh, straight away. I think that is very important to consider. Um, some people would probably say, no, it's not necessary. I think it's definitely necessary. I, I think something to consider you know, to really be able to do that way before you get into the back of the truck. Um as it relates to catastrophic bleed. Um, as it relates to uh, pelvic trauma, I think it's very important to preemptively put on a sheet. Uh, we don't have a lot of binders. Uh, binders were gone in the first you know, four weeks. Every pelvic binder that you've ever heard of is gone. So uh, I have no idea where they all are right now, but we just have sheets. So put, put that sheet on if you have any consideration of mechanism as it relates to pelvic trauma. Um, you don't have to necessarily put it on full bore um, if there's no evidence, but have it so that that you can you can definitely um, uh, consider it's a lot easier to put it on prior to transport as relates to airway securing that tube is significant and if you're bagging that patient for two hours and 15 minutes which you may be doing um, really really have a focus and if you can have a second rescuer if you can have a second responder with you really focus on on clinical response to ventilation think about you know really have that uh, monitoring device which is a simple pulse oximeter device or a, a nice beautiful monitor if you have access to that. Um, if you have access to a vent, obviously a ventilator is, is excellent. But really being able to say, I need to secure this tube and I need to be focusing on nothing but this airway. Um, as it relates to head trauma, I think it's extremely important to consider this with bumpy roads and um, uh, what drugs you're going to be giving as it relates to pain and sedation. I think it's very important to consider ICP early on. Uh, we're seeing patients that are ages 17 to 60. Um, so this is a different, a different, um, uh, different uh, patient cohort. Uh, we're, we're dealing with multiple cohorts of patients for the different type, you know, different use of ketamine versus um, other other sedation. Um, and pain management when we have access to pain management, uh, which I can actually chat on quite a bit if you, if you have interest. But uh, and then when it you know relates to uh, breathing and circulation, just really you know being anticipating that, making sure you have a bag valve mask on you, and say you know this patient has a completely patent airway. They have an isolated uh, femur injury. They're talking to me. They may even be speaking in my own language. This is a bonus. However, I need to have on my person a nasal pharyngeal, an oral pharyngeal, preferably an tracheal and, and the ability to intubate, but I know I need to have a bag valve mask. We're not leaving without a bag valve mask because I have no idea what's going to happen for the next two hours and 40 minutes or for the next nine hours if I get stuck somewhere. And you really want to have that escalation of care prepared so that you're not sitting somewhere saying, gosh, I wish I had a bag valve mask and I wish I had a nasopharyngeal. And I think from a lessons learned standpoint, um, this is, is, is critical. I think a lot of people have learned uh, these types of lessons, but it's really acute when, they're, when you have no access, when treatment is absolutely vital and when some of these life-saving measures are indeed life-saving. And it's very simple measures. And, and when you're able to enact them and provide them and provide that level of, of support and care, which kind of comes across rather simple and basic for the advanced uh, practitioner, but you're, you're able to deliver your patient um, uh, to the higher echelon of care successfully. And that's very rewarding, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, I am 
incredibly happy you just got done saying that because we are constantly preaching, you know, prepare for transport and creating a problem list, which will help you prepare for transport. And guys are so um, energized to get them onto transport, um, but they don't actually realize how much transport sucks. And it, you totally. find space, uh, vibration, uh, light issues. Um, it just makes everything so much more difficult. If you could just take a few minutes, look over your problem list, and then forecast ahead, what are the things that can go wrong? And then prepare for all those things, whether that be, you know, maybe I do the intervention now versus later. Um, maybe I, you know, put the tourniquet, you know, on very loosely on their leg, you know, but uh, um, I have those things in place. Um, come up with plans, like actual plans, not just I have ketamine. It's I'm going to pre-draw, you know, 100 milligrams or 500 milligrams, whatever it is, into a 10cc syringe, and I'm going to, if if they become start becoming light, I'm going to administer, you know, I don't know, one cc or whatever it is. But come up with a plan, have all those things lined up, and know exactly where they are because they are on your person. Uh, you're going to have such a uh, a much better ride with that patient. If you've just taken those few minutes and kind of pre-pod everything. Absolutely. Yes. 100%. 100%. And, and, you know, if you are, if you're, if you have the ability to bounce this off of another provider, whether they're a fellow doctor, a fellow paramedic, a nurse, another provider, a combat life service, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And, and bounce these ideas to be able to, as you said, walk through that problem list. What do you think about this? And I think you're right. A stitch in time saves nine. And you uh, you anticipate and you prevent um, the, at, at any time that you physically can. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Yeah. I mean, Murphy jumps on you is the moment you didn't think of something. And uh, that's just a, I found that if I prepare for something, uh, generally it never happens. And I, I look just like a, uh, you know, I'm worried about everything. Right. Um, but, you know, mentioning reaching out and talking to somebody, how is the, is the telemedicine, is that, have you gotten a fairly robust system? Is it very sporadic? We do not, I, I do not have access other than who I am either receiving a patient from or providing a patient to. I do not have access to a higher care provider. Having said that, we use um, uh, digital communications between echelons of care for the purposes of patient uh, information. We have a, a nice little standard operating procedure of the information that's supposed to be provided. However, uh, you may not have access you know, to enough time uh, and technology, and there's a lot of jamming and cyber warfare taking place here, so we don't have access necessarily to, to write out this nice long-winded report. We also have to have everything in two languages, in English and in Ukrainian. So what we have done uh, as well, not only just putting it in if you do have time, uh, sometimes you can do it for a colleague, so if you're sending a patient with two other colleagues on the road, uh, you may stand back and you're waiting for another patient and you can actually send that information with all the clinical details and interventions um, and vitals when they they left with an ETA, and you can send that to the, the group for, uh, you know, further in the rear. What also works is a voice file, so you can put it all into a voice file and send that voice file, um, and then even if it is in the wrong language, you have some time to get a little bit of a translation to be able to kind of walk through, okay, this is what we think is coming in, or this is what, um, this is what we've sent them, and that they have to then you know, prepare, whether it's for additional surgical interventions or um, just uh, you know, further stabilization at a roll two with the idea of getting them uh, further uh, in the rear to a roll three. So when it comes to telemedicine, really that the, that's what we've seen. That's what I've seen, I should say, um, as it relates to you know really seeking additional support and guidance. I do provide medical direction for partner forces as well as for um, uh, others that are asking for clinical support and advice, really as it relates to transport decisions. Um, 
standard operating procedures being what they are, it provides a lot of advanced direction uh, as to what, what needs to be done in the pre-hospital space. Um, and really, when it comes to telemedicine, we really use it for communication between echelons of care currently, although that may, that may expand uh, as this uh, you know, uh, warfare evolves. Right. So you're really just uh, optimizing that asynchronous type uh, telemed. Yes, that's correct. Yes, absolutely. All right. Very good. And that I'm obviously that's working out as, as at least it's providing some information and, and uh, uh, forehand knowledge of patients at least get you a little bit up more up to speed. Yes, and it's also helpful with allocation of resource. I mean, if you've got only so many trucks and you say, wait a second, you're sending me two patients, um, you know, don't move, wait one, and we're going to get you another patient so that you can be full uh, before you make a move. Um, and that's, you know, allocation of resource when it comes to transport vehicles, as well as, hey, wait a second, we have X amount of blood, or hey, wait a minute, we only have so many X fix for, um, for surgical interventions. We need, you know, we know what's coming in. Now, um, the fog of war being what it is, sometimes that that information is completely garbled and completely upside down and backwards, but we do have a bit of an advanced warning if we do receive those those messages, yes. Um, so let's say um, somebody is somebody is coming to you, they want to, you know, from Europe or wherever, um, what advice would you give them as far as preparing when it, when it, before they get there? I think it's very important to understand the risk. Um, I think there are a lot of excellent practitioners, doctors, paramedics, nurses, um, combined advanced practitioners that uh, may be used to a different contracting sort of world um, or a different type of uh, humanitarian response. This is a extreme conventional multi-domain battle. It is horrible. It is horrendous. It is not been seen since World War II. And so the risk is severe. The challenges are severe. The, the, di the dynamic, the layers of complexity are extreme. And I think it's very important to understand that for anyone that would like to engage and provide uh, you know, medical needs and support in this environment. Um, that's at a sort of a broad level. At a very practical level, I think it's important that to bring your own medical equipment, to bring adequate um, uh, personal equipment so that you are able to sustain yourself for about three days without any access to logistical support. Um, being able to provide your own, you know, protein bars and, and everything else, uh, no showers, et cetera, for, and no running water for some period of time. I think that's very important at a practical level. Um, as well as to understand um, how you link in and how you plug into the system. Uh, the Ministry of Health and Ministry of Defense are at war. Um, the whole country is at war. So uh, it is a challenge. It is a um, ethical, moral, legal, financial, and logistical challenge to to come to Ukraine to provide support. It is extremely difficult. It is uh, greatly needed, and the support is well accepted. And uh, you know the the host nation are extremely gracious about receiving support and advanced levels of care. But it is very difficult. It, it is very risky to travel to a lot of these locations. When you're at a lot of these locations, it is very dangerous. And uh, if you're not prepared for that, it is it can be detrimental to the rest of the team and to the patients you're trying to provide that to if you don't really truly appreciate that risk. Um, I think from a cyber warfare perspective, it's very important to understand that you are now a target. You can be the, the greatest doctor in the world providing life-saving surgery. You are a target. You are target number one. And so that is very important to understand that healthcare in danger, the concept from ICRC about healthcare in danger. It is very real um, and it is well evidenced here as to um, uh, the, the targeting of all of all healthcare professionals and and you know doctors specifically. Uh, there are thousands of of uh, examples of of what took place not only in Mariupol and in Kiev but elsewhere throughout this this conflict. So I think this is a significant risk that really needs to be understood prior to deployment, uh, whether it's for a few weeks or whether it's for many months. Good. Um, so that's more of an individual person to person. What about 
you know, other NGOs, which I'm sure there are several that have gotten into Ukraine. If a NGO was moving in, I guess, where and doing what um, would best help uh, the people of Ukraine? I think the, the the best people to answer are the Ukrainians, the Ukrainian Ministry of Health, the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Interior. Um, there are a, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of there's millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars um, to be spent, and it needs to be spent, and it needs to be invested into into these uh, infrastructure to provide healthcare services and support. But the best the best people that tell you where the needs actually are 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 found in Ukraine. So it's it's sometimes it's how do we take this circle and make it fit into a square and vice versa. Um, but really listening. I think sitting down and listening and saying, well, this is what we have. Can this be used? Is this helpful? And you may say, they may say, no, actually, for us in this area, we don't need that. Okay, no problem. I'll knock on another door in another region, and we'll see if that is needed there. And really listening to what Ukraine has to say of what their needs are. They know what their needs are best. There's a lot of challenges. There's certainly a lot of personalities to overcome, of course, like every country in the world. But um, in Ukraine, they can answer that question the best. And they are willing to sit down and engage with partners and say, look, this is what we need. This is how we need it. Can you can you help and, and provide this level of support? And then plugging into that, supporting that, um, uh, that this is the this is the best way for engagement, uh, I think, in Ukraine right now. Yeah, I think you're I think you're right. Um, I think all too often people try and force uh, their will and the things that they want to do on uh, somebody else. And that always ends up making things a lot harder. Yes, absolutely. Um, so kind of closing up, is there anything else that you would like us to know about, uh, uh, what's going on in Ukraine and, uh, you know, best practices? Absolutely. I, I, you know, blood, um, it is a challenge. There is, um, anecdotal evidence, uh, um, from 2015 and 2016 of the use of pre-hospital plasma. There is a lot of um, access to O-negative blood. Right now, as we speak, the Ministry of Health is engaging with partners in North America and Europe to really support the production of and the legal uh, use of low titer O group whole blood. And this needs to be pushed and driven, and it's an all hands on deck. We need to encourage best practices the Ukrainians know this is best practice. They want to learn it. They want to get it into the hands of the people that will use it most and best. And this is still a challenge to overcome. And uh, the Ministry of Health is taking a lead on this, and this is great. And I think this is something that, um, from a from a department of from the uh, Department of Defense CPGs, it is well uh, evidenced in the literature. And I think um, uh, multiple subject matter experts throughout North America, as well as in Europe, need to encourage this and drive this and keep pushing this so that the, the Ukrainians can really receive absolute best practices in damage control resuscitation. And I think this is something that um, we're not there yet. I think we're coming there. We're getting there. This has been a nut to crack for a long time. And uh, we can finally see light at the end of the tunnel. And I think this is something that every, you know, this is all hands on deck, really push this into the space, get this, get this out there and really have, um, uh, you know, uh, really get this into the right hands of the right people for damage control resuscitation. That's the most important thing um, as it relates to the innovation and the new stuff. This is what's needed. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I really hope that this gets pushed forward um, for a variety of reasons, but definitely currently uh, just being able to get uh, best practices, best practices uh, as close to the, uh, the X as possible. Um, as far as the blood that is available, um, how is storage of it? Um, how is that? You know, have you run into any issues uh, with that? Um, I have not. Um, a lot of the pushback has been uh, saying, well, you know, we can't store it. Uh, well, you can. And a lot of places right now have moved refrigerators uh, right up into the resuscitation bay in Ministry of Health um, uh, uh, um, 
facilities. And so, uh, you know, big and small, um, there are the, the blood bank, the blood group, uh, the blood bank system is really centralized. Uh, we need to start shifting a lot of blood from point A to point B so that we can get more of O negative access right now in the immediate, meaning today. Um, however, when it comes to the storage and movement and logistics, there's a lot of a lot of lessons that that can be learned um, of how they've overcome a lot of these challenges, but also as relates to best practices, there's a lot of a lot of information that can be exchanged and and say, look, this is this is how this was done, and yes, there it's unfortunate that um, this this may not be completely readily accessible. There's a lot of technology involved, but there are ways to overcome and sort of low tech. And I think Ukraine has a lot of uh, a lot of things to offer of what it's done so far. I think. Um, Understanding, really, truly understanding. I think you know the Thor Group, uh, the Trauma Hemostasis Oxygenation, um, uh, you know, Research Network. I think they re- and Resuscitation um, uh, Network. I'm sorry, they um, they really have produced so much incredible data to really truly understand um, all of the logistics relating to uh, access to whole blood and really what what will and will not work in the pre-hospital environment and in the austere environment. So I think I think really going to that and using that and being able to apply those principles uh, here in Ukraine is really needed. And, um, uh, you know, additionally, just to sort of to, to, to move on into additional lessons learned and lessons shared, I think what is absolutely vital, and this has been the case since 2014, is the sharing of information from this warfare. Uh, there have been a lot of lives lost. There have been many lessons learned. Unfortunately, there are lessons lost. We cannot let that happen ever again. And we need to share these lessons. We need to share these lessons with all partners and be able to truly understand what worked, what didn't work, what low-tech solutions actually uh, had amazing outcomes and really reduce morbidity and mortality in ways we never we never dreamed. We need to really press and we need to listen to these voices that of, of actually absolute incredible practitioners that are practicing right now, they don't have time right now to share, obviously. But when they, you know, we really need to encourage that that information share, that information gathering, and that lessons learned and and, and lessons shared environment with our colleagues. Uh, and this is uh, this is absolutely an incredible opportunity um, for all partner forces, for NATO and for Department of Defense, certainly to be able to really gain significant insight from uh, from Ukrainian uh, from the Ukrainian experience. Yeah, I mean that's such a such a big part, and is going to be so help so helpful, um, just in in care altogether, all the way around. Is just that documentation and lessons learned. Um, we have that exact problem too, um, especially after conflict. Uh, you know, we lose all that information because people leave and they keep all those little nuggets to themselves, and so that's part of the. Uh, the reason why we we have this podcast is so that we can uh, save and archive that that type of information for future use. So um, if you are willing, uh, I'm definitely more than happy to be a conduit to at least save information, if not uh, post it, at least save it for others to uh, learn from. Absolutely, 100%. Absolutely. And a shout out actually to the NATO, um, uh, you know, Military Medical Center of Excellence out in Budapest. They're trying to really drive and push a lot of the lessons learned um, from pre-hospital medicine, uh, in addition to other partners throughout uh, Europe and North America, and, and uh, you know, um, uh, as well as the Thor Network. Certainly, uh, really trying to, to get this information shared and uh, really engage um, and to provide an environment where people have, uh, you know, where prov- uh, providers have, uh, you know, free open access to share this information. So I, 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 I second that and I think that's excellent. Perfect. Um, so this stuff I didn't plan on including into the podcast, but uh, one of the uh, things that uh, myself and uh, the podcast and uh, Obrick, um is trying to get some of our, the, our uh, educational content, either podcasts or videos and things like that, get those translated into Ukrainian um, what other languages, if you were going to try and cover, you know, the Eastern Bloc, uh, what would be the other high-yield languages that, that should be translated, information should be translated into? Polish, Romanian, Hungarian, Slovak, and Ukrainian. 
these these are the these are the big ones i think um you can go further on i think um additionally you know english uh a lot are really are really focused on english but when it comes to the acute as it relates to to this this focus um uh, really looking at uh, Polish and Romanian are, are big ones. Having said that, you know, the, the aggressor, the attacker, the bad guy is Russia. <laughs> right. um, however, there are a lot of Russian speakers in Ukraine. There are a lot of Russian speakers in Moldova. Um, there are a lot of Russian speakers uh, in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, as there are English speakers in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Um, I, I think... Um, uh, really considering and really focusing on Polish and Romanian would be would be uh, a big move forward. And um, uh, but the, you know the readership in English and the, the the listenership in English is also quite large. Okay, perfect. Um, would there be any areas, um, obviously, blood and resuscitation with blood? But would there be any other topics that uh, you feel are needed? Uh, topics as it relates to additional um, conversation training. or training classes, like just packages that I could uh, get translated and hang um, in a in a very public place, so that anybody and everybody that wants them can can go in and get the get that and augment training uh, because it's going to have to be desynchronous. So damage control resuscitation CPG, mm -hmm. pre-hospital blood uh, CPG. And uh, more, you know, additional information as it relates to damage control surgery. A lot of surgeons that are performing damage control surgery right now are OBGYNs. There is a stomatologist, uh, you know, a dentist, a MaxVax right. uh, um, Max surgeon. Um, now they're per performing laparotomies. So uh, additional information as it relates to best practices within damage control surgery would be very helpful for that cross specialist that 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 non that non general surgeon that non trauma surgeon that's now been pulled into surgery you know scrub in and uh, either help uh, help perform this laparotomy or do this laparotomy I think this is something that um, you know open laparotomy uh, I think this is something that would be of significant benefit and there would be a very high yield for this. All right, perfect. I can work on that uh, very quickly. Um, I've done some with uh, abdominal packing, um, but uh, but uh, I can get with one of the surgeons here and like Stacy Shackelford or somebody and to go over principles of DCR. Well, she's absolutely amazing, uh, absolutely, and um, you know, being being able to get behind her with uh, with a lot of best practices is fantastic. I mean, she's uh, amazing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm, I'm very thankful that she doesn't outwardly say I'm an idiot. So um, <laughs> um, but uh, so other than DCR, are there any other topics like crush syndromes or anything like that? Um, well, because we're seeing such an uptick in the number of traumatic brain injury, um, I think really clearly understanding that pathophysiology and really in the last eight years there's been a, a expansion of understanding that pathophysiology understanding what best practices for diagnostics as well as uh, the sequelae so i think traumatic brain injury as it relates to percussive uh, injuries and thermobaric weapon systems uh, which are being deployed here a lot uh, i think that would actually be very beneficial i mean a lot of walking wounded are all traumatic brain injury um, mm -hmm. from blast. So uh, that, that would probably be very helpful because I think there's, there's not really a focus on the sort of um, best practice stepwise fashion of diagnostics, of you know, understanding the sequelae and understanding the long-term um, you know, the issues that may, that may arise and also oh. best practices for treatment, obviously. Right. No, again, too easy. Uh, Van Wyck, uh, neurointensivist, um, we've had several podcasts with him about TBI and best practices, uh, pre-hospital anyway. Um, we haven't gotten into like bur uh, burr holes or anything like that, but definitely pre-hospital, uh, we've covered quite a bit. Amazing. That's awesome. Yes, that would be very helpful. Um, so DCR, TBI, anything else? What else can I give you? 
I mean, that's th those are the big ones that come to mind. If anything else pops up, I I'm happy to, to follow up. I could actually ask some colleagues uh, later this evening. Um, but, I mean, that's, the, the, you know, obviously they could use the whole gambit, you know, the whole zip file of CPGs. Um, but uh, having said that, I mean, those are, the, those are the big stuff. That's the big stuff that really comes out. I mean, um, you know, the uh, emergency war surgery 2015 or 2018, I can't remember which one was translated, uh, which was, was great. Um, the, the the most recent one that's out, I don't think has been translated yet. Although there was kind of a, a process to try to do that, um, but that's that's the big that's the that's the big stuff that comes to mind. I think okay. actually, you know, as it relates to antimicrobial um, guidance and antimicrobial stuff relating to surgery and and every, you know, it's very difficult with different geography and different locations. But that would actually, you know, from a, a you know antimicrobial um, uh, you know, pharmacovigilance standpoint, that may be, that may be very helpful as well. Okay. Um, have you, uh, one, I know for a fact that the TRIC guidelines have been translated, translated into Ukrainian, um, an easy button answer. If you're able to get on the internet, which obviously you are is uh, deployedmedicine.com. And so they have all the TRIC and all the CPGs and, just about anything else they can shove onto that website. Uh, that's oh, an it's easy... an amazing resource. Yeah, I dump that into everyone. I, I send that link to, to three different people every day. Okay, perfect. perfect. Yeah, oh, it's the best It's the best resource. I mean, I, we download all the videos. We're trying to get those videos for blood translated into Ukrainian. Um, there's a lot of the stuff that goes to YouTube, and there's some, like, auto, like, AI sort of translation yeah. stuff that happens. But, um, yeah, that, that absolutely the best resource that we use uh, every day, literally every day. Yeah. Uh, also, if you didn't know, the uh, on the Prolonged Peel Care website, you can easily get um, – just uh, there's just one click button and it just downloads literally every every uh, paper and uh, cheat sheet and things like that that we have as well. Definitely. Yes. I haven't been to that website in a few a few weeks. I need to go back and um, I think I've downloaded those in the past, but I need to go and, okay. and make sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Um, well, that's it for me. Um, is there anything else that you would like to add to this? From my side, I truly appreciate the opportunity. Long-time listener, first-time caller. It was awesome to uh, to engage with you guys. I mean, I'm absolutely uh, honored to be interviewed, and I think you, what you guys are doing is fantastic, um, and really um, I, I encourage it and I support it 100%. No, I, the honor is mine for certain. I was excited uh, for quite a while to get a chance to talk to you, and I'm I'm stoked that it, it finally happened today's podcast be sure to go to our website www.prolongfieldcare.org find us on facebook youtube instagram subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine this is dennis for the pfc podcast Our boy is waiting there for you